And when he reached out to me and said, I think you'd be a great fit. And they're the first and only Jewish pack that solely focuses on domestic issues. It was like a light bulb went off in my head because those are the issues I've spent my whole career focusing on if I could incorporate my Jewish identity into it and hopefully grow to be a better Jew, then all the better. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Derek Pugh is the PAC director for Bend the Ark, a Jewish partnership for justice. Bend the Ark is a political action committee solely focused on domestic policy. Their work includes candidate research, recruitment, endorsement, and funding, and coordinating with campaigns. We had a good conversation about Derek's work and where Ben the Ark fits into the progressive ecosystem. So first our sponsor, and then my interview with Derek Pugh and Ben the Ark. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Derek, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Derek Pugh, and I am the director of Ben the Ark Jewish Action Pack. I have been in this role for three years now, um, just completing my second cycle. And we've had a lot of success and are excited that for the first time we, in our history, we actually have a chance to pass policy. Prior to Ben the Arc Jewish Action, I was a political consultant for various democratic campaigns and organizations. My first super PAC I ran was against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky in 2014. Sadly, we still have him, but it's nice to see him in the minority. I'm originally from Cincinnati, and I got into politics through the Roosevelt Institute. My background is actually in biochemistry. I was working with the White House on the Affordable Care Act, and um, that's how I went from something very fact-based to policy, and that's when I really learned about politics and started getting more into organizing and working with candidates. What attracted you to politics in the first place? I originally wanted to go into medicine to help people. And then when I learned more about policy, I quickly realized you could affect far more lives with a stroke of a pen than treating them one at a time. I thought that politics worked somewhat like medicine. You have a symptom, you know the cure, 
and instead uh, in politics you throw snake oil on it and now we're in this position where the senate isn't functioning and we've never been this polarized as a nation and it's time to deliver for the american people and so they can gain trust in our institutions again i think you know a lot of people focused on trump's authoritarian tendencies and one of the biggest ways that authoritarians gain power is by you know whether it's hitler but basically saying i'm an individual that can solve it all look how broken these institutions are and it's just a constant feedback loop so i'm also a strong believer in taxes taxes how we pay for a civilized society and my grandfather was a union organizer so i guess that's always been there and just kind of growing up and turning 18 and voting for barack obama and then seeing how quickly our country went backwards and trying to get us to a place that lives up to America's promise. All sounds pretty good. What was Young Invincibles? I believe I've had one or two others who went through or helped start that enterprise. So Young Invincibles worked with the... White House on the Affordable Care Act and getting young adults registered and really helping them to see the importance of needing healthcare insurance, which is something very hard to do, just like getting millennials to vote. Some of those efforts worked really well. Certain pieces, in hindsight, it's kind of the, you know, entire story of the Affordable Care Act sold as a piece. People don't like it, but taking every individual piece, everyone agrees with it. Um, but Young Invisibles as an organization itself is somewhat of a startup and gosh, I don't even know how big they are now, but many of the people have moved on since and they were graduates of Georgetown Law. Um, and even through the working with the Roosevelt Institute, I've just kind of noticed there's been a pipeline of younger progressives or people that are active that have stayed in that progressive pipeline in some way or another and have found really interesting and exciting ways, especially with technology to impact the world for good. What has your career before Ben the Ark best prepared you for being director here? Running a super PAC, it's a lot easier because you can have one individual that, you know, essentially bankrolls the whole operation versus a traditional PAC. You have to go $5,000 at a time or bundle by 2800 through each individual. So there's certainly the finance component of it and I love finance but you really look at the candidates what you want to invest in sometimes you know they're not going to probably win the race like Jamie Harrison but you know they're going to go on to do something else so it's worth the organizational investment Uh, from the organizing standpoint most of our 
members are PAC leadership committee that give their verse certain amounts every cycle. A lot of that is just organizing them around which candidates, you know, my community organizing background and working with the Midwest Academy on lobbying and targeting senators. Those are the same principles for, I would say, fundraising. And that's probably been the newest part of my role is 50% is now fundraising. What's the founding story for Bend the Arc? How did it get going? So we have evolved from a C3 to a C4, and then we added our PAC as recently um, in 2015. Our C4 was right before that, but we used to be an organization, Jewish Funds for Justice and also Progressive Jewish Alliance. One was solely based in California. The other was national, but mainly East Coast, New York, and they came together to form then the ARC, the Jewish Partnership for Justice. And that story actually um, came about when our former executive director was asked to speak on the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. Last minute, they needed someone Jewish to add to the schedule as well. And you know, he really spoke about the Jewish values and why we were on the front lines with Martin Luther King and why we're solely focused on domestic issues and advocating for the rights of other minorities as a minority group ourselves. And after he spoke, he got off the stage and King's daughter grabbed him and said, thank you for your words. I didn't know the Jewish community still cared. And that kind of ties back to our current campaigns. Right now we're focused on immigration because many of these immigrants at the borders are modern day and Franks. And our other big campaign is focused on fighting white nationalism. And when we were doing all of our research on anti-Semitism and we do trainings with members around anti-Semitism, as well. It just gives us more leverage in DC to talk about anti-Semitism without bringing in Israel, which just helps us out on a lot of fronts, especially because we know the Republicans have been using that as a strategy to divide the Jewish community. Last Congress, McConnell's first bill was focused on BDS. That's not a coincidence. And we're never going to be able to defeat anti-Semitism. If you know, racism is America's original sin, then anti-Semitism is the world because really anti-Semitism is the playbook for other isms and it comes in various forms and shapes as well. So essentially the only way Jews are safe as a minority group is having a thriving multiracial democracy. And that is something the PAC has been focused on. For example, there are several members like Lucy McBath and Andy Kim that are candidates of color representing majority white districts. Antonio Delgado is another one of them. And sadly, all those are, uh, were toss-ups. And 
just by having them there, it makes our community much safer and we're committed to keeping them there. Could you help me understand where Bend the Ark fits into the progressive ecosystem? What other progressive Jewish groups are there? What is different about Bend the Ark? And then maybe go outside of just progressive Jewish groups and, and how you see Jewish groups more broadly. There aren't many Jewish organizations that we naturally work with because the ones that have C4s or PACs are focused on foreign policy, which we don't touch. So when you look at our membership, we actually have members of APAC and J Street. But since we don't focus on Israel foreign policy and the American majority of Jews support the same domestic policy, that's kind of our niche. So when we're working with other progressive groups, it's more like being a coalition partner to groups that are on the front lines, like Color of Change. There's a group of organizations called the Fight Back Table that was created right after Trump was elected. And we're one of the members of that in terms of helping to drive strategy for other progressive organizations. And we also think it's a benefit that we just aren't tied to Jewish organizations. And that goes again to showing that Jews are a frontline impacted community and we care about these issues. You know, we're not like Trump thinks we are in terms of being, uh, you know, focused on Israel or that's where our loyalty lies. And that's something good. And the Jewish community itself is changing. Uh, one of our big programs called Sela, it's on our C3 side, but it's focused on training Jewish leaders of color because most people have this idea of what an American Jew looks like. Tell me about that fight back table you mentioned. Who else is in that? And was that an important thing? So for the aligned organizations, it meets quarterly. It's, you know, basically how each progressive institution within their own niche area, it covers the host of what would traditionally be considered progressive immigration groups. And that's also important because it, we feel that we should be taking the messaging on these issues from the people that are directly impacted instead of putting our own spin or speaking for other communities. And I would say overall, one good thing about the Trump era is or at least um, I don't have any data on this, but to me it feels like progressive groups have really started working together more in coordinating in targeted ways instead of splintering. And that's a concern I have now that we don't have one person to align an opposition behind. Democrats have been able to keep together uh, thankfully, these past two years, and hopefully we can continue to do the same. You mentioned some surprise that, you know, in some quarters that 
the Jewish world is still progressive. I'm Jewish. I grew up in a family that came out of labor and is pretty liberal. I kind of assumed that most Jews were that way while knowing that some weren't. You must study where Jewish public opinion in the U.S. is on domestic stuff. Where is it? So thankfully, when it comes to issue areas, we don't have to do that research because APAC and J Street actually do it for us. And consistently, Israel and foreign policy rank number nine or 10 in terms of the highest priorities and other issues like environment, immigration, civil rights, social justice are number one, number two, number three. I'll also add that we had a 6% increase. I need to look at the numbers, but I think it was a 6% increase in terms of Jews voting in this presidential election versus the last one. And that was our big IE campaign was targeting Jewish voters in key swing states or where there were a high enough population that could make a difference. But through our research and surveys, we found that essentially if you support Trump, it's even less about if you're a Republican, but if you support Trump, you're a single issue voter. And that's on Israel. And things like moving the embassy and stuff like that was playing to that to that crowd. Now that Sheldon Adelson has passed you know, how that changes the Jewish landscape within the GOP. After all, there are only two Jewish members of Congress that are Republicans. Tell me about the the size and scope of Ben the Ark. Like, what's the budget? How many people work for your various entities? How much impact do you think you have out there? So we have grown tremendously since I started. And much of that was around our work we did against Trump. Again, we were very early in terms of being a Jewish organization that had a PAC and a C4 and could actually call Trump out by name. We were the first Jewish organization to launch a national campaign against Trump. And when he announced the Muslim ban, we had this big campaign called We've Seen This Before. And that nearly doubles our size of grassroots members. Now, I think our operating budget is about $10 million for the first time ever. Our PAC raised over a million in a cycle. And for our grassroots supporters, and most of the staff we've added, I think we're up to 55 now, have been on the field side because we have local chapters in most major cities, and we call them moral minions. A lot of the organizers are focused on local issues and campaigns in state. That's pretty sizable for a new organization. Where do you find the funding? So the funding comes from various places. Obviously, Alex Soros is heavily involved. He founded our PAC, and he's George's son. But we get a lot of grants for our C3 work because we have our Jeremiah Fellowship and that's 
training young Jewish leaders and then Sela, which is focused on Jews of color and positions of power. And we were doing that before. So really it's been the C4 focused funding and a lot of it has came from our the growth in our list. And over the past four years, especially with Trump being in office, people who I would say were politically involved in terms of a two-state solution, or if they were focused on foreign policy, they knew it wasn't going to go anywhere. And all of the efforts kind of came back to defeating Trump, essentially, taking the House first, and then winning the Senate um, and White House. So it's been from various areas, but that's, you know, whether it's our pack growing or our field growing, I would say our members skew younger than the average Jewish organization. I, I've served on the board of Jewish organizations, and I always find it funny when you get an invite and it's, you know, the young professional range is like 18 to 45. <laughs> and it just keeps on getting bigger. Um, but a lot of Jews, American Jews at least, aren't meeting at shul or synagogue or the JCC and they're wanting to live out their Jewish values through social justice. And that's what is bringing them into our fold. And the same with donors. Many of them didn't realize they had an option to give Jewishly or to give their political funds through a Jewish outlet until they hear about us. So a lot of that has also just been um, grassroots growth here from the Jewish community. And you know, Jewish geography is fun. Um, so it's pretty easy to reach across the country. Can you tell me more about other programs and efforts what are you generally up to? It was focused on the Senate, and we did a lot of work in Georgia. Um, we had Jews for Warnock at first, and then we had Jews for Georgia. And being on the ground in Georgia, it was just stunning to see the political ads firsthand, mainly all against Rafa, radical liberal Raphael Warnock. Um, but many of it was focused on Israel. They don't, they're obviously not targeting Jewish voters. It's the evangelicals that they care about. And so we made sure that we could come out as an opposing Jewish voice. And we've done this with several candidates. We did it with Afaf's campaign several times when they enlarged his nose on campaign ads and because we're solely focused on domestic issues and fighting anti-Semitism in the U.S., that gives us the credibility in the niche space where others don't have it. And really, every day is different, especially in 2020 and now 2021. You never know what's going to be thrown your way. We're very happy with the Biden administration's executive orders, especially on immigration. I'm talking to some of my other lobbying friends and they're frantically trying to figure things out. And normally we would be. So it's a nice surprise to kind of get your wish list. It's a very good change in what you read in the papers every day, isn't it? Yes. And well, and that's kind of what developing strategy now is 
I don't think anyone wants to treat Biden like the left did to Obama when he first took office. I'm still interested to see how that plays out. And even, I think, you know, Trump obviously changed the country, but he also changed the left. And many of our reactions to his norm breaking, sometimes I feel like could have been reactionary, maybe not the most strategic thing, but because Trump did this, we're going to do the exact opposite. And usually that comes out in finer details of policy. So it's going to be interesting to work with members on the details because they actually have a chance to pass things. How do you think Trump changed the left? Being automatically reactionary to, let's say, the border wall is a good example. Before, everyone would agree that we need some type of wall, whether that's physical or electronic. You know, we need custom agents. But Trump wanting to build a wall made a certain portion of people just be automatically opposed to any borders. And then you get the conversation of open borders in terms of policy and just doing the math and knowing the numbers you need. If you want to get anything done, you have to work together, especially in this nationalized environment we find ourselves in or even ICE, like abolish ICE. I don't even know if most people knew what ICE was before it became a slogan. Um, But there are just various details like that, maybe not thinking through everything and doing things just out of timing, like the Patriot Act. (laughs) Am I right in thinking about Ben the Ark as of a kind in any way with other new organizations that came up on the left in the last five, four, three years, like groups that are fighting on climate or uh, race or other things. Do you feel like there are other groups like you in other issue areas? So there are certainly other organizations that, have came after us. Indivisible is a great example. And so is Swing Left. The main difference is those organizations are focused on, I would say, just flipping seats, essentially, which I'm all for, but we have a longer term goal of attaining power for the purpose of changing the country in a more equitable direction and one that is bending the arc of justice. It's not just to win. So, you know, a good example is we need Joe Manson in that seat, but our PAC would never endorse him. And, you know, he probably wouldn't want our endorsement either. Because at the end of the day, if we're going to endorse someone, we want to make sure it helps and not hurts them. Um, so we're very explicit about that. And we've seen attack ads because Alex Swartz is our founder. If 
where we've endorsed in the race and then they've used anti-Semitic commercials against our candidates. So that's the, I would say, main difference. And also just since we are focused on organizing the Jewish community to use the power we've built over the decades, it's a lot harder when you're a multi-issue organization like us versus if you're Planned Parenthood or NARAL and focused on reproductive rights or even J Street or APAC where it's just foreign policy. So that's also why it's harder to fit into a box with other um, progressive organizations. Uh, tell me about Alex Soros a little bit. What's he like and what involvement continues? So he is now our founding board chair and it was really at the forefront and helped our pack to get going. He has since been focused on open society and other things with George and the family, but he's one of the most cerebral individuals I uh, have met. He finished his PhD while he was on our board. I think it's in Judaic studies. And it really just wants to live up to his father's legacy and not a selfish individual. It's also very saddening um, to see this style of authoritarian populism and how Soros is now the modern day Rothschild and how even platforms like Facebook have used those tactics for their own profits. What are your plans going forward? Well, we're all figuring that out right now. I think if we would have had the results we expected in terms of picking up 10 plus seats in the House and not losing them and having a more comfortable majority in the Senate, but with redistricting coming up and probably going to lose some members there, California is going to lose a seat, Rhode Island is going to lose a seat. A lot of our House frontline members are going to be in danger, so we need to keep them there. Obviously, we need to take advantage of this cycle because Republicans are defending 20 seats in the Senate. Democrats are defending 14 and our best chance is, you know, in Pennsylvania. So trying to continue to build that, but it's also probably not going to work unless we can deliver to the American people. And Georgia is a great example of the type of coalition we're going to need to win based on the Republicans' advantage in the electoral college and Senate. What would you say is your biggest challenge? (laughs) Uh, I wish I didn't have to pause and think about that. (laughs) Figuring out, especially because most American Jews live in urban centers or on the coast, how to be influential and continuing to educate our community around racism, anti-Semitism, 
you know, even educating them around not falling for the traps when Ilhan Omar says X, Y, or Z and fighting it internally. And I would say that's the, the biggest piece is education and it takes time and organizing. You know, when people talk about minority groups nowadays, I often hear Jews omitted. Many Jewish people have done well, have been here longer, somehow have the image of having prospered, and some of us have. How do you think the community is doing in this country, and how should it be viewed among minorities? I think the minority question is a lot more complicated, and that goes back to a long history and feeds into anti-Semitism itself and people pitting other immigrants against each other until they could be brought into the fold and be considered white. I was actually having a conversation with David Cicilline, who is gay and Jewish, but most people don't know he's Jewish since his father was a attorney and a big Italian Catholic. But he was running for leadership recently and, you know, going back to diversity, both of those things, being Jewish and gay, have also elevated to being omitted from the minority or belief that now that people have marriage or aren't considered Hebrew for census purposes, we've made it and that's not the case. We essentially were given whiteness and it's based on someone else's judgment call. So it can be taken away at any time. And again, that's why we need people like Lucy McBath in Congress and having individuals that reflect essentially American life and through helping them get there, they also learn that we're in this with them and we're all together. Derek, why is this job directing Ben the Ark a good one for you? So I've been on several Jewish nonprofit boards and I enjoyed that, but hadn't done much before. I also forgot to mention that before running the PAC in Kentucky, I also was the deputy director of this organization called Campaign for America's Future, which has now merged with USA Action into People's Action. But when I heard, and I was actually recruited by Bob Kramer, who's Jan Schakowsky's husband, and when he reached out to me and said, I think you'd be a great fit, and he essentially said, they're the first and only Jewish pack that solely focuses on domestic issues. It was like a light bulb went off in my head because those are the issues I've spent my whole career focusing on. And if I could incorporate my Jewish identity into it and hopefully grow to be a better Jew, then all the better. And it certainly takes a tribe and I wouldn't want to be in community with anyone else in this time. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that you'd like to answer? 
I think we were connected through Lisa Greer. Yes. Who is very involved in the Jewish community. Yeah, Lisa uh, wrote a book about... Philanthropy Revolution. Yes, and I had her on the show. And and yes, she she introduced us. That's how... In fact, that's how I get most of my guests is one guest leads me to others. Well, that's the best way. And well, that's how our pack has continued to grow and be successful. And donor education is a big piece of it on the pack side. That's probably the hardest thing because there's three different types of packs and they all have different loopholes and contribution amounts, which can be very confusing to donors. But people like Lisa have also feed into our lobbying strategy because it's a very grass tops approach. For example, the first candidate I endorsed was Chrissy Houlihan in Pennsylvania, and it was at Lisa's house. And Lisa and Chrissy are good friends because Bart and her husband, Josh, are both in the same Aspen Fellows program for humans, and it comes down to relationships at the end of the day. How long do you think you'll stay with Ben the Ark? The whole reason we're raising money and organizing is to pass policy and create long-term change. Now we have a chance to do that, and we haven't before. So I think that's going to be the exciting part is working with these members and it's also this cycle was the first time I think I was, I've had so many losses and that was, it was surprising how hard it hit me because you grow to know these people, you know, that they're, they believe in what they're fighting for. Um, and then to have someone that's in it for themselves or is a QAnon candidate win is really saddening. It's pretty rough. It's a tough sport that you're engaged in. I worry a, a little bit that getting the majority, even slightly in the Congress, we let our guard down for 2022. Or some of the team goes to work governing and we don't have what we need to win again. But um, I'm glad you're on the field still. Are you more worried from the grassroots side or the establishment side or both? Both. I mean, just the energy that came from being opposed to the horrible man we just got rid of helped create donations, helped create organizations. A huge amount of energy came from fighting. Now we can't relax because the other side is going to try to take power back. And they're going to be as bad or worse, quite possibly. No one has figured McConnell out yet. Um, it's a pretty obvious what uh, he's after. He wants power again, and uh, he will wield it. I'm worried. I hope you and the people that you're aligned with in fight back tables and et cetera are, are hard at work because it, the fight continues. It just does. It certainly does. And in this era of money and politics, the other beneficial thing about 
being a Jewish PAC is that most Democratic candidates, or at least ones we're going to support, have signed the No Corporate PAC pledge, which means they aren't taking money from corporations, but they will take our money because we're a nonprofit, which gives us just another leg up on having their ear because it's just astounding when you go to these luncheons or lobbying retreats and you're all sitting around the table and each person's going around saying their name and what they care about. Usually there's only one, maybe two other nonprofits represented. Well, you'll probably have two from Google, two from Amazon, and then various trade associations. But it helps make an impact, especially when you go after someone who is talking about the need to change this tax revenue code for manufacturers. And then you just want to ensure kids aren't locked in cages at the border. Well, Derek, it's an honor to talk to you today. Anything else you want to say? No, except I am very curious about your career and hopefully I'll have, we'll have the chance to connect again sometime and maybe even in DC when we can. That was Derek Pugh. Derek is at bendthearc.us. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.